I'm going to ask Colt, my dear friend, Colt the Conqueror, to come up for the reading of God's Word today. So if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start in verse 26, and we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But we recall the former days when after we were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those, with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have no need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, today we thank You for Your great power. Your awesome power to create and to destroy. The power of grace in our lives and of Your mercy against our trespass. We pray now for the brokenness of this world with what's going on in the Ukraine and the conflict over there. Even for the brokenness of our own bodies as sickness continues to make its way through this church. With COVID seeming to linger around. We pray, Lord, that these things fall under Your power and we know that they do. We give thanks, Lord, for the gathering here and all over the world that on this day, right here and now, there are people worshiping Your name and opening Your Word and exalting You, the King of all. We pray, Lord, that the God of the universe that You are, that Your power would reign over all of our brokenness. We pray that You'd use Your power to help in the Ukraine, to protect civilians and their families, missionaries in the churches, leadership there, and the soldiers. We pray, Lord, that Your power would lead, lead governments, lead our government leaders, and we do pray, Lord, in line with Your Word, that You would, in Your power, judge. That You would judge evil and all of its parishioners on this day. We pray, Lord, for sickness in the body in every way, for the life groups that are dealing and um, having to love on one another and all the meals that are being cooked. We thank You for the Word of God and how it lives in our hearts and is active and is, is working, Lord, within this body and community. And we pray that it's the same today. That You would lead this message and my tongue. 
In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So as a parent, I have uh, set out in my life to be a better parent than my parents were. Not that my parents were bad in any way, they were wonderful. But we want to improve upon maybe the ways that we were hurt or harmed as children. And I remember as a kid, one of the things my dad would do, and he's a very big and intimidating man, he would say, if you don't stop doing whatever it is you're doing, then I'm going to discipline you. And it was his word that was like strong enough to kind of deter me away from doing it. But there were a few times when my sinful nature would kind of persist in a way. And that, that discipline never came. It just was another word and another word and another word. And I thought to myself, when I'm a dad, I'm going to keep my promise. And what I say I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. And if I tell my kids I'm going to discipline them, that's the law. I didn't know at the time how just difficult it is to keep up with the energy and sinful nature of my own children. It's an exhausting endeavor. And sometimes I do try to intimidate with my word, though I have no intention to really back it, really back it up. We make threats that sound like promises. God's warnings are always a promise. The God that we serve will always back up what He says. And if He has placed it in this book, it is certainly going to happen. Today's text is a warning and a reminder for both the newly converted Jews of the day and for us that God will keep His Word. Now, typically my preaching style is pretty energetic. I'm moving around. We try to have a good time and be engaging. But today it just seems like that tone is inappropriate for the text that we're going to work through. Like in my house, when we have to get real serious, the excitement kind of gets sucked out of the home. My speech slows down. I'm making sure that everybody is connected and paying attention by how they look at me. Now I don't have that kind of authority here. But it's important to remember that the Bible reveals to us that God is loving, but He is also just. That He is merciful and kind, but He is jealous and has wrath. It's a part of His character. And here at the crossing, it's our aim that we hold to every line of the Bible. Here we're going to preach every word. And when we get to the tough text, we're going to preach the hard sermon. We believe that every word is good, every line is true, and that even the ones that are hard to hear are worthy to be shared. Today the author is making two points in the passage, and they'll be our two points for today. First, a warning for God's people. And second, a reminder to endure. I'm going to follow up today um, and we'll close with just four practical observations that maybe you can apply into your life. Now, I think we would be remiss without making a few kind of setting points here. Um, to understand this passage, we must understand it within the context of some of the stuff we've already talked about. The original audience. 
The book of Hebrews is written to a group of converted Jews who have converted into Christianity. The language they would use is they've moved from the Mosaic covenant of or the, the old covenant into the new covenant. They're young Christians. They don't know very much. They're still drinking meat. Or still, ooh, that's a bad smoothie. They're still drinking milk, even though they probably should be maturing. Last week's sermon, Rich addressed, and, and I mean, just here's a little plug for you. If you haven't listened to the sermon, you have made a tragic mistake. Uh, it is, it's, it's one of the best sermons I've heard from any level in a long time. And Angela, great job to you as well. Sorry that I wasn't here to be, to be witness to it. Rich's sermon was really the, the prequel or the bookend to this warning. The pattern of the author in Hebrews is to provide a warning and bookend it with an encouragement on either side of that warning. The bookend from Rich's sermon were three let us statements. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us not forsake. And then this idea of gathering together as a body and working out into good works for one another, that it's a help to us. Maybe you could summarize it like this. Rich's sermon was about eating your lettuce and going to church. And this warning is for those of us that are not eating our lettuce, are not partaking in the let us commandments of the writer. We pick up the text in verse 26, and we'll just uh, read it here and see what the Lord has for us today. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately and after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is the fourth of five warnings in the book of Hebrews. The first is drifting away from the saving word. The second is departing towards disobedience. The third is a delight not to grow because of the deafness to the truth. The fourth, the one we'll talk about today, is the danger of deliberate sin. And the fifth warning closes out with the missing God's word and indifference. Deliberate sin as if we've known the truth. This is a specific subgroup of people within the Christian community. This author is directing his aim towards a group of people who have heard the truth and are continuing in a, in a qualifier here what is called deliberate sin. The term commonly thrown around for something like this is apostasy. What they're struggling with specifically in this context here is this group of Jews is taking on pressure and persecution from their surrounding environment to return back to the Old Covenant. To the old days of killing goats. And that is an apostasy, a turning away from what Christ has done. In other words, this turning back to the killing of goats is an offense to God because of the death of His Son. For us... We don't do a lot of killing goats around here, at least in my house we don't. It looks more like turning back to the old man. To have received the truth and are turning back to our deadness in sin. This is a very specific group of believers. Maybe you could qualify it like this. 
Struggling with sin and loving your sin are two different things. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible does not contradict itself. We are not talking about a salvific purpose. In other words, this is not about salvation. If you have trusted in Christ, the term I like to use is that God does not fumble. He's not going to drop you out of His hands. But I can have received Christ and live in such a way and that I'm acting as if I did not know Christ. And even then, there's more qualification to be had. This is a very specific group. There are those of you in this room here and now that are struggling with repeated sin. You can't get over it. You're damaged by it. But here's the marker that's important. You hate it. You're fighting your sin. Maybe you're losing battle in this phase of your life and sanctification and maturity. But you are trying you get knocked down and you get back up and you get knocked down and you repent and you confess and you're seeking brothers and sisters in the Lord to help you along your way. You are struggling with sin. Now, there are also some of you in here who are not struggling with it at all. In fact, you love it. You have a secret life that you hold dear. You have a private web browser that you're proud of. You grin when you're by yourself because of the way you can sneak and run around or whatever it is. You have a sin pattern that you deliberately continue in because you love it and you know that it's wrong. It's a point of pride in your soul. And for those of you in here that are dealing with that and for these people here, there is a stark warning for you. If you value sin more than you value uh, Jesus, if you've stopped fighting your sin and just embraced it as your own love, there is a judgment. And that judgment is terrifying. Every sinner, the Scripture says, will be judged. Some will be judged by death eternally. And others will be judged as an acquittal under the work of Jesus. But we will still make an account for our sin. The scripture here, the passage that we would look at is in, is in Revelation chapter 20 when we would, in the end of our life, when we stand before God and that there is the book of life and the book of death, that there is this, uh, there's this allusion to the sin of our life being put on display in front of us. And what this author is getting narrowly pointed to and talking about is how does God feel about you when you deliberately and continually sin and you like it? What is his response when that gets revealed to you? We can't lose our salvation by deliberate or repeated or willful sin. We are all in that same boat. We're not talking about salvation explicitly in this passage. And in verse 26, he goes on to, to provide more clarification when he says there's no longer another sacrifice. Jesus is not only better than the Mosaic Law, or the old way, the old covenant. He is the best that will ever be. Listen, folks, He's never getting back on the cross again. Nobody greater than Jesus is coming. He was the perfect Son who lived the perfect life. And He died 
in his perfection as a payment. And that payment was satisfactory to the judge himself. If you deliberately continue in sin, the author says what you have done is said that effectively what Jesus did on the cross didn't get it all done. The next time Jesus comes, it will not be as the Lamb of Slaughter. It will be as the King of Conquest. And every person, including the believer, is going to be judged. Judged rightly. And judged fairly. And judged perfectly. We don't know exactly what will happen. What the punishment will be for this crew that deliberately continues in pleasurable sin. We know it's not the lake of fire, but we know it's not the crown of righteousness. And I've come here to tell you folks that there's a big gap between the two. My brother Tyler and I were talking about this passage this morning and he had said, you're drawing towards a curtain. And you know it's not the lake of fire, hell on the other side of it. But he's warning us in this passage, don't open the curtain. Because you don't want to see what's on the other side. And if you've held this, held this book in your lap, if you've read it, you've been warned. We get the illusion here of the fury of fire as an indication of what it would be an experience like. Needless to say, it's not fun. And in verse 28 and 29, we go on and it says, if anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment, how much worth might be worth underlying, underlining in your Bible? Do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which was uh, sanctified, he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? How do we break this down in verse 28? According to the law, the law of Moses, there were some sins that if you um, interacted with or were guilty of, there was not sacrifice for forgiveness. In that system, you messed up, you killed a goat, you were okay for another day. And folks, if you've read the Old Testament, they killed a lot of animals. As an example of the, just the weight of sin, the amount of blood was to display to us how big of a deal our sin was to God. But there were some sins that you couldn't just bring a goat to. The law does not provide an out if you're a murderer. If you worship a God that is not Jehovah. And for those, there was no sacrifice. Your punishment was death. His example is a logical argument of lesser to greater. He's saying, if you committed that sin, you got death. And how much worse is it for those who do these three things. Trample underfoot. See the blood as unclean and outrage the Holy Spirit. To trample, these are three marks of apostasy is how I would qualify them. Trampling underfoot. This is a sign of disrespect. In Eastern thinking, to put something under the heel of your foot is the highest level of disrespect you could display with your body. Who remembers when President Bush had a, th a shoe thrown at him? You know, there's a lot better weapons if you really wanted to hurt somebody. 
It's a symbol. They were trying to disrespect the president by putting him under the sole of his shoe. Regarding the blood is unclean is a reference to unclean blood. We see this reference used commonly in the Old Testament. If the blood is unclean, it just meant it had no power. It was worthless to the law or to the work of sacrifice. Give me a lamb without blemish. Its cleanliness said that it had worth and value. Willful sinners who love and continue in their sin in the eyes of God are effectively saying Jesus' death was nothing special. It carried no power. And you can disagree with that in logic, but if you're living your life in such a way, that is how God sees your behavior back to Him. Finally, the third one is to outrage the Holy Spirit. To believe in Christ means to be indwelled with the Spirit. It is the seal of our salvation. It's the sign that we can have confidence in. But be mindful that wherever you go, the Holy Spirit goes as well. And if you're continuing in this marital affair or fledgling in this whatever secret life you have, the Holy Spirit is there. He is not accompanying you in your sin. He is not agreeing to it. In fact, He's outraged. He's grieved. He is a witness to the debauchery of your life in light of the Gospel you say you believe in. To believe in Christ and willfully and repeatedly sin with pleasure in your heart is to essentially, in our view, point a, um, a certain finger right in God's face. That is the outward expression of what's going on in your heart. Maybe I can ask the question that the author asked. How severe is the punishment for the one who does that? Finally, in 30 and 31, for we know Him who said, Vengeance is Mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord, as it says, will judge His people. It is a fearful thing, 31, to fall in the hands of a living God. When I think about the hands of the living God, I think He's got the whole world in His hands. We sing the song to express protection of God and His power and size to our children. It is supposed to be a comforting song. And the hands of God are inescapable. He's not going to drop off. It takes no effort of God to resist our most powerful resistance or fight against Him. He is all-consuming. It's a comforting thing to be in the hands of our loving God. This is true. But it is no comfort at all to be trapped within the grasp of God when He is burning in anger against you for the disrespect and judgment against His Son. Again, not to salvation. He is a father who loves his son and is watching his son being disrespected. How do you think he ought to reply? The son who died 
A son who endured. A son who was silent, not making defense of his own perfection, that carried a cross on our behalf. And when we despise him, we must expect that God will be displeased. Verse 30. Here he makes another reference to Moses'. There's a lot of tension here in Hebrews and Exodus and Deuteronomy. So I don't want to belabor you by going back into it. But there's a reference here in the Song of Moses, which is commonly called in Deuteronomy, just before the entrance into the, to the promised land. And it says that vengeance is the Lord's. And we use this verse, and rightfully so, from Romans and other places, that we, we, we call out to the Christian not to use vengeance because vengeance is the Lord's. In other words, you, we understand that you are a victim, but don't strike back because God is the perfect judge and He will make it right in eternity. And that is a proper use of the text. However, in this instance, he is saying God is enacting vengeance and those who deliberately sin are getting their payment. Consider for a moment that you're not the victim. Vengeance is God's and it is right for Him to have it. It is just for Him to bring it about. What a sobering text. Trust me, folks. This is as difficult for me to say to you as it is for you to hear. I'm challenged by every word that falls out of my mouth. With tears last night, I was sobered in my own life. But I don't want to rob you of the reality of what your Bible says. My aim today is to capture exactly what the text is saying, not only in its word, but in its tone. I don't want to be too heavy-handed so that I can prove some point and be a distraction from the word. And I don't, oh Lord, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's just to deliver it to you the way it is. So as we transition to the encouragement, I think it's prudent for us to just take a moment to consider what gets people in a condition like this. Where they love their sin and still know what Christ has done. Where they compare the two together and they say, give me the secret life. I don't care about the consequences. You may not believe this, but I once ran a half marathon. It was mostly as an affront to other people who are constantly making claims about my weight and things. I'm telling you, I'm the fastest 300-pound man you have ever met, and it's not even close. So to prove the world wrong, I trained and developed endurance, had a race plan, and it was all going great. My aim was to come in without ever walking. This was down in Atlanta, a difficult trying course, and I was doing great. Until mile nine, no man's land. Too far away from the finish line to have any real hope. And too far away from the starting line to think, nah, I'm just going to walk it off here. And for about 48 seconds, I had to walk. Ultimately, I blamed it on my training. If I would have eaten or ran or done this minor tweak, it would have been, it would have been easy to do. And I told my friend, a strong distance runner, I'm involved in the track community and we all hang out together, a dear friend of mine. 
that it was the training that messed up. And he listened, he looked at me and he said something in liken to this. My friend, tempo and speed are developed within the constraints of your practice and talent. But endurance, endurance is a matter of character. Endurance is not about practice. It's about holding on. Vince Lombardi, famous quote, coach, is quoted in saying that fatigue makes cowards of us all. And fatigue made a coward of me on that day. I stopped thinking about the finish line and holding on, and I started considering just how bad my feet hurt and how brutally chafed my thighs were. See, things like fatigue and pain and pressure in this life can cast your eyes down from the eternal promise of Christ into the world that we live in, into the muck that we're dealing with. And we move from an exaltation of Christ with our life into an internal focus of how do I protect myself? How do I get relief from the pain? How do I get time away from the pressure? How do I just recharge and recover in my own individual way? Think about the situation of the original audience. No long history of martyrs or the New Testament to lean on. Again, Hebrews tells us they were immature. They were struggling with their faith. They were baby Christians. And they were living in a place in time and culture where it meant if you were not a practicing Jew, you had no social life, you had no job, you had no food, you had no protection. The constraints and pressure of this time would have been overwhelming with the whisper of, just go back. You're still loving God. I still go to church. I still love to worship. But if we just give up this thing, this grace will, grace will endure and I'll still be in heaven someday. This is the conversation that you and I both have when the pressure mounts and the fatigue builds and the pain screams. God put these people in a very challenging situation in a very challenging time. And then He sent a wise Christian leader, a.k.a. the author, to tell them to hold fast, to draw near, to keep the faith, to be confident, to believe, and to endure. And He ends it with this warning. Brothers and sisters, He says to them, if you don't, and you continue to live in deliberate and willful sin, knowing the truth, and returning to the old way, you have to expect that God will keep His Word. Beloved, we do serve a loving Father. But listen to me, He is also a hard Master. You have been purchased and adopted by a King who cares for you. And Scripture also says, you are a slave. Both tensions and realities are true. And obedience to a master, though difficult, is possible if we would take the encouragement that he offers us in the next passage to remember and to endure.
the offer finished is finished with his warning and is concluding with an encouragement. This is the same pattern he follows with all the warnings. Be warned, but you can do it. Let's read in verse 32. i got to go fast. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured hard struggle and sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Remember your endurance. I love the but right there. We just, with the tone in the room, man, we needed a good but. That's a, a big but to kind of break it up was helpful. That joke played better in my living room, but that's okay. He goes on by saying, the former days of your enlightenment. He's saying, back to the day when you knew the truth. This is before they were unsaved. And you endured hard struggle and sufferings. Sometimes publicly. The afflictions that came across you. You did it. You endured. I love this passage. This is a kind of a freestyle here. And uh, I believe it's Genesis 12. Abram gets this promise from God. Okay. Then Abraham, what's the first thing he does? Goes to Egypt. Here's a tip for you. Don't ever go to Egypt in the Bible. Okay? Bad news. He realizes his sin and all that happens and he returns. You know where he goes back to? His first altar. Back to the place where he knew he was right with God. Back to the days in his mind when he was certain that he was holding fast, that he had energy to run the race. For each and every one of us in here that truly believe there are moments in your life where you have endured. Praise God for that and use it as fodder and fuel for the fire of your faith. Because when hard times come again, the author tells us to endure. And to do so by remembering the days of old. Enduring suffering, struggles, uh, reproaches, afflictions. And you held on then so you can now. If fatigue makes cowards of us all, then experience makes brave of every man. This is true in Scripture. Uh, I'm not going to read them all here. I have way too many. But James 1, 2, this is my favorite. He says, Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of different kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The workout that you go through produces endurance, and the trials of yesterday produce endurance for tomorrow. You can do it. I can't tell you how many times I've been on the line. Only athletes, I guess like the major athletes can know what that means. On the line, the baseline of the track, or the baseline of the basketball court, or the baseline of the football field. And you're thinking to yourself, if that guy blows the whistle one more time, I'm going to die. My heart is going to fall out of my chest. And if you have been with me in that situation before, at least for me, I have encountered. I went through it that day, or that two-a-days, or that workout, or that exercise. I did it that time. I can do it this time. It's true. He says that they endure because they remembered. He's saying that the strategy of endurance 
is remembering what you've had done in faith, or more frankly, what Christ has done for you. Bring to memory the times you've succeeded in faith when you were feeling tempted. But there's a better remembrance, isn't there? Not just of what we've done. An example of endurance is ever before us. The greatest example of all. Let me read you a passage here. I'm going to take you to an example of endurance. John 19. And Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed in a purple robe over Him. They came up to Him saying, Hail, the King of the Jews! And struck Him in the face of their hands. John 19, a little later on. So He delivered Him to be crucified. So they took Jesus and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him and two others along each side and Jesus in between. Jesus was mocked, scourged, humiliated, and then asked to bear the weight of the instrument of His own death. Fatigue makes a coward of those who allow it. Jesus is a picture of horrific pressure and a refusal to quit. A holding on. Not by performance. This is not a call for you guys to do the right things to please God. This is a call to believe. To trust in God. All he had to do was stop saying he was a king. Or just stop defying the Pharisees. You just need Jesus to live to fight another day. But this is the language of those who shrink back, isn't it? Now, the picture of Jesus bearing the cross on His path to crucifixion is the picture of drawing near. It's the picture of having endurance, of holding fast, of having confidence in the process. It's the picture of being a trusting son and an obedient slave. It's the picture of having your eyes on eternity in ill regard for the current circumstance. And this is what your secret life, your hidden agenda, and their deliberate sin was mocking. The cross was for me and you. And it paid it all. It was a sufficient price to be paid. His, his sacrifice was sufficient. And if there's anybody in here who doesn't know and doesn't believe, who is continually in sin but dead in your sin, and you're seeing now what Christ's example and sacrifice means in truth, I call you to repent and believe. And then finally, in 1035, I know we're going a little long here. I'm going to go fast. 35 through 38. He says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For if you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming of one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And 39, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their soul. He goes on to say this, don't throw away your confidence in what is to come. Remember what has happened and be confident in what is to come. What is to come? Pure love. Eternity? Yeah, of course, in salvation, by grace. 
that's been given to us. But there are rewards in eternity given to us for how we live on this planet. There is something to earn. Crowns, as it's described, these are points of glory for living by faith. Maybe a minor warning to those who are continually, deliberately in sin. Brothers and sisters, not only is the punishment scary enough, but we are also missing out on God's gracious, loving care for us that He would reward us when we live by faith. The important thing to know, maybe to write down in your Bible here, is that your confidence can be thrown away by you and you only. The confidence and the faith and the hope that we have that Christ is bringing or that God is bringing for us can only be thrown away by you. We have need for endurance. We have need to hold on. And the second strategy is that we would remember the finish line. The promises of the rewards who live by faith. To do so, maybe check out 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. I'll paraphrase in this, in this way. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and willing to stock or to share. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation of the coming age. This is not talking about salvation. That comes for free. This is talking about storing up good things for us. Judgment is in fact coming. But we can do it. We can hold on. To draw near or to shrink back. That's the question that he leaves us with. And then he gives this final battle cry. Don't shrink back because we are not the people that do that. Here at the crossing, we're not going to shrink back. We're going to get into small groups and we're going to talk about real things and we're going to love each other and we're going to have hard conversations and we're going to love those who are in sin and we're going to fight with those who are fighting sin. We're going to hate what God hates. We're going to love what God loves and we're going to do it together. You see the bookends? Don't forsake the gathering. And we can do it. And be warned. I don't care how big this church gets or how big the budget is or how what art is on the walls. I care about how deep and thriving the souls of God are in this place. And to do so, we have to know that God loves us and is a judge. I'll close with four quick observations as we prepare here. I believe that we can get into this condition because we can't see Him now. The penalty and threat of what standing before God looks like. How terrible and terrifying that would be, isn't before us. And so because we don't experience the penalty immediately, we continue in the sin continually. That's a bad sentence. Let me give you just a couple quick examples. Think about Moses goes up on the mountain and leaves the people. He says, don't just sit here. I'm going to go speak to God. What do they do? While the prophet's away, the gold cows they make. Even further back, Adam and Eve. God is not present. They eat of the fruit and then they hide when God returns, when He comes back. This absence of Christ, this presence moving away is what can, puts us into the temptation of sin. And that's why you hear the challenge from the author. Draw near. Draw near to God. Be in presence with Him. We can do so with confidence. Finally, or secondly, sorry, if you are alive today, there's hope. Maybe you are dealing in continual sin. Struggling 
You love it. You don't want to give it up. But the conviction of this warning is fostering new ideals in your heart. You're alive today maybe for that very purpose. Just to throw it off. To repent. To humble yourself. To confess before God. And to let the Spirit of grace do a work in your heart even greater than you can imagine. Thirdly, God has given us all that we need to endure this world. We have proof and evidence to look back on. We have promises to look forward to. We have the body and the gathering of God's people to work, uh, hold us up. And we have the faith to do it. God has supplied us with that. This would be a great sermon to talk about faith. But we're going to do that next week. If you will, just cheat a little bit while Pastor Aaron is gone. As we prepare for communion and bringing up uh, worship team, I want you to just see what uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says as it ties in to this warning and this encouragement to endure and to remember. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. I pray, Lord, that You would humble me in the words that I've shared today. Lord, I ask um, that You would continue to prepare the hearts of those who have received this Word to work it out and flesh it out in their own lives. I also pray, Lord, for conviction to rise up in each of us that we may not be dealing with such deliberate and continual sin, but we may know somebody who is. And that warning may be not directed at us, but maybe one that we love. We ask, Lord, that we would be a nation and a people and a church of those who are committed to prayer. And finally, Lord, we thank You. We thank You for being a God who loves us, a God who is just, a God who is jealous, a God who is never changing. You are so kind, and we thank You for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.